0: Welcome to the Think Christian podcast. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and your host. Our topic today, mentors. Now, mentors are often thought of as an academic or business practice, but it's also biblical. Writing for The Banner magazine in 2011, Gayla R. Postma shared this. The Bible is full of examples of people who had mentors in their walk of faith. Paul mentored Timothy. Moses mentored Joshua. Elijah mentored Elisha. Naomi mentored Ruth. Elizabeth mentored Mary, the mother of Jesus. And most important, Jesus mentored his disciples. Mentoring is all about relationships, usually one-on-one relationships. Spiritual mentoring involves teaching, but is also about modeling how Christians walk with the Lord. We also see mentors in pop culture, including in two new Disney series, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Ms. Marvel. That's right, we'll be covering both the Star Wars and Marvel Cinematic Universes on this show with the help of Michelle Reyes and J.R. Foresteros. Now this summer, I'm also excited about the latest installment in the Jordan Peele Cinematic Universe, that is NOPE, which opens on July 22. Those of you who belong to the TC Movie Club know that members have already voted for the prophetic voice of Jordan Peele as the topic for our summer session. So we'll be gathering online to discuss Get Out, Us, and Nope on Saturday, August 6. To join the club and get a meeting link for that, sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movieclub. That's thinkchristian.net slash movieclub. And if you want to check out my video essay on Peels Us, which will help jumpstart our online conversation, you can find it on the Think Christian channel over at YouTube. For now, though, it's all things Disney. Let's get to our conversation about mentors and faith formation with J.R. Forresteros and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Glad to have J.R. Forresteros back on the show and back on the Star Wars beat JR, you got to <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi before I did, and I think you'd seen a handful of episodes. You warned me wasn't all that great. You weren't too thrilled. I ended up liking it quite a bit. So are we going to have an argument here? Quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like we might have to. We might have to discuss. You didn't come around on the series by its end, huh?
1: I mean, I felt like the last two episodes were better, but it was such a low bar after the first four uh, that, that wasn't saying much for me.
0: Okay, go on what we didn't get into it in detail
1: earlier. Okay, so, so tell me what bothered so here, you. Here's my problem. The way episode three ended had all of the set pieces in place for what we know in episode four. So I didn't need this series at all. There was nothing you that happened with
0: what we know in a new hope, the feature. Correct. Yes. Correct. Okay.
1: Vader is Vader and scary. Luke is in hiding on a desert planet with Uncle Owen and Anberu. Obi Wan is a weirdo that lives in the desert and is a Jedi secretly. That's where Episode Three left us. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this: someone who didn't watch Clone Wars, so I understand there's a lot more Obi Wan, Anakin stuff in Clone Wars, but I didn't watch any of that. For me, this whole series had no stakes at all, because every single thing that happened, we already knew how it was going to end up, except for the one new character they introduced, who I thought was great, easily my favorite Weaver? part of the show. Inquisitor yes. Riva.
0: Okay, Inquisitor we'll get, we'll get to her.
1: So, I mean, for me, it was it was fine. You know, it looked great. the The Obi Wan and Darth Vader stuff was fine. It made my eyeball twitch the same way Solo did, and Rogue One. when it's having to explain all of these little things that I don't want or need explained in the Star Wars universe, where you know, in Episode Four, we're very clearly George Lucas did not know that, that Darth Vader was Anakin Skywalker. Right, and Obi Wan tells him that tells Luke that he killed his father. And then in episode, I think it's episode five when or six when Luke says he lied to him. He's like, Well, it's true in a certain sense. <laughs> right. Right. And like, and then in this epi- and then in this, you have that thing at the end of episode six where Vader says, I killed Anakin, not you. And you're like, I was just, I was rolling my eyeballs so hard because I was like, we don't need that. And it doesn't make any sense. It's purely there for fan y plot hole, explain away, all this prequel stuff that Star Wars is doing, that's what drives me insane. Like I just can't, I just can't.
0: Let me, let me jump in there because I think that's all fair, but that moment you called out, which is a little spoilery. So I should probably say at the top, all the episodes have been out. We'll dance around some things. There's one other element I want to bring up later. I'll give a spoiler warning and I'll give a bit of a spoiler warning here because I want to comment on that. Um, explanation, as you say it, that we get from Anakin slash Darth Vader. So maybe hit the 30 seconds button if you don't want to hear this. I actually really liked that moment, JR, because for one thing, how they did the sound design where you got some of Anakin's voice, some of James Earl Jones as Vader, and some like electronic crackles. And it was an incredible aesthetic way to, to capture this identity dismembering that is essentially the character of Anakin Skywalker. And so I liked that bit, but I also thought that filled in some of the edges for me about the entire journey of Anakin Skywalker, where we start to understand how he makes this transition. And it was something new to me for him to take responsibility about the decision to turn that way, and in a sense to take it away from Obi-Wan Kenobi. I thought that was interesting, especially in the context of this mentorship idea we want to dig
1: into. So that's my defense for that moment, but go ahead. I don't disagree and again I overall actually enjoyed the big end piece of that. It was just that particular like line which for me clanged so much in the same way that the entire reason that the movie Rogue One exists is to explain a quote unquote plot hole. Yeah, which is how the Death Star could have this gate glaring vulnerability or in Solo how every single part of Han Solo's life has a backstory, including his name and how, yes. he, how he came Terrible. up with the improbable nickname of Chewie from Chewbacca, right? right. Like, no one could figure that out on our own. <laughs> so we had that, you know. <laughs> I agree so with that. So I guess that. that one line, but no, overall, actually, I think probably that final showdown was my favorite bit of the show for all of the reasons you just said. Anakin was in the prequels. He was such a... A person who who could not take responsibility and who allowed himself to be manipulated so much. And here you see him at least trying not to be that, though, again, the real tragedy of Anakin is that even when he is Darth Vader, he's still the pawn of the Emperor. You know, Mm -hmm. he never quite becomes his own person until the end of Return of the Jedi. But here you see him trying to do that. And yeah, like rejecting Obi-Wan's pity and rejecting Obi-Wan's sense of responsibility for him. I agree totally that actually, I thought that worked really well overall. I don't know that it justified the existence of six episodes Okay. Me, but I, do, I, I did like it a lot.
0: We're probably coming at uh, these series in general from different ways. I do agree. I'm not in it for the explanatory bits that we get. I'm not really in it for nostalgia even. I'm not in it for the fan service of it. What I've enjoyed about the series that I've seen and stuck with is just the world building. And I think that Obi-Wan Kenobi did a really good job of that. The director here, Deborah Chow, interestingly also did two episodes of The Mandalorian. And I felt the same way about The Mandalorian in terms of the world building. I think her and her production team just gives us these Tatooine, people have complained we're always on Tatooine, but I don't mind that because it's so tactile. And how about the early scenes where we see Obi Wan has a job slicing meat out of this <laughs> giant corpse in the desert at this processing plant? That sort of stuff is why I watch these series. Yeah, I just want to absolutely. see someone come up with that and have them envision it in an incredible way. There's also the episode where we go to this uh, oceanic base of the empires and there are TIE fighters hanging from the ceiling like bats. That, again, is a new thing to me in the Star Wars universe. Maybe they've done that before somewhere, but it seemed new to me. And I think Chow, in particular, as director, just has an eye for framing these iconic figures against these backdrops. There are a lot of lightsabers in this series, which I love. Lots of good lightsaber stuff, and I feel like she has a nice sense of how to use those elements in terms of, like I said, the composition, the lighting. And then I think maybe I just have a soft spot for McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi and I liked his grizzled performance here. So those would be my defenses in terms of a first level viewing experience beyond looking too deeply at it.
1: Yeah, I think for me, what I enjoy most about these series is when they get away from Skywalker Saga. You know? Okay. Um, so again, Mandalorian is a great example I was one of the three people in the world who actually didn't like when Luke shows up at the end of season two of Mandalorian. You know, I, I was rolling my eyes pretty hard at that. I enjoyed a lot of Book of Boba Fett for the same reason. We Even though it was all on Tatooine, right? We're getting non, We're getting non-Skywalker, non-Jedi, non-Resistance versus Empire, you know, kind of stuff. We're getting more stuff that lives in the cracks of the universe. So for instance, I thought the Inquisitors were super interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Because... They're Jedi hunters, and they have lightsabers, but they're not Sith, they're not Jedi, but they still have some kind of relationship with the Force. The blind monk in Rogue One, you know, the one who comes in, I am I am the Force, and the Force is with me, I am with the yep. Force, and the Force, you know, same kind of thing, right? Like, I enjoyed him so much because he's not a Jedi, but he's still, in some ways, accessing this Force, and it, it's widening up the world in ways that I yeah. find compelling. And so, yeah, like... I wanted to hang out so much more with the Inquisitors and find out so much more about them. Or Kamel Nanjiani's character, who is this, you know, uh, fake Jedi who's using yeah. all these tricks. con man. Like, yes, I loved, like, I was like, that's so interesting. And, like, all of that stuff to me was more interesting than what was going on with Obi-Wan and Vader. Because, again, we already have all of that story. And I, I didn't feel like much that we got in Obi-Wan really changed how I felt about those two characters in any significant way, other than the argument you made about Anakin Vader, you know.
0: No, I think we're on the same page. We would both prefer a Nanjiani starring series about this Jedi Con Man. Yeah. Is that that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think this isn't what we have here, and I think we have kind of laid we well it's it's yeah i mean i i think we both are coming at this from a somewhat similar position i think we've laid sort of the framework of what this does offer but just for anyone listening who hasn't watched it yet but yeah this is taking place between revenge of the sith and a new hope and we have obi-wan hiding on tatooine watching a little luke Uh, But it really spends most of its time with a young Princess Leia, played by Vivian Lyra Blair. She is kidnapped early on from her adoptive home on Alderaan, and then Obi-Wan heads out to rescue her. As we've said, also, we see Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader. There are flashbacks, so that Hayden Christensen returns, Anakin being trained by Obi-Wan. And then there are those confrontations we've already touched on. So maybe that's a good place to start that relationship, JR, in terms of this mentorship theme. I want to talk a little bit though before we jump in there. What does mentorship mean to you in general when you hear that term? How do you think about it, uh, and maybe especially how how do you see it playing out in a Christian context?
1: Uh, it's funny you say it that because I, I was going to start with saying I, I think of it through the lens of discipleship primarily. Okay. Because you know I, I grew up in the evangelical church, so I heard all the sermons early on about how discipleship is more than classroom education, right? It's not an impartation of knowledge. It's a Jesus's call to follow me, right? Imitate Mm -hmm. me, do the things that I do, uh, watch me, live with me. So when I hear the word mentor or mentorship, it's much more about that, right? It's not a, hey, we're going to meet together once a week and I'm going to teach you things. It's a, hey, we're going to live together. We're going to be in significant relationship together. Whereas the mentor, I am giving you access to my interior world. And you as the mentee then will learn and imitate. And and, I mean, I don't want to get too deep down the rabbit hole, but I think it becomes reciprocal as well. I think the mentor then hopefully gains new perspective on things through the mentee and through how they are perceiving things and the kinds of questions they're asking. I see real mentorship, authentic mentorship as something that Christians call discipleship. I think when we push discipleship past information transfer into embodied imitation. Okay. I think it's what Jesus calls us to do. It's what He invites us to do. It's what the Great Commission is talking about when He says, "Go into the world and make disciples." And so, even when I see that in you know, like business contexts or something like that, like that's still ultimately what a good mentorship is, right? It's not a come meet with the boss once a week and let him or her lecture you for an hour. It's it's you work alongside, you work mm-hmm. with, and and you and you're trained by, which again is very much the Jedi and the Sith way, for that matter. Okay. Right. And I think in, in episode three, that's what we saw for was sort of with the battle for the soul of Anakin Skywalker was you have Palpatine <laughs> offering him these invitations to do things Palpatine's way in exchange for certain benefits. It's true. And then you have – you, of course, have him having been following Obi-Wan and imitating Obi-Wan, fighting alongside Obi-Wan, and that not getting him what he wanted ultimately –
0: yeah, and I think as you're describing it too, I would add. It seems like you're you're hinting at this relationship is a crucial part of discipleship as mentoring. Uh, there has to be a real relationship, at least, rather than a cursory one or a an, an instructive, a simply instructive one. And maybe that's a distinction we see if we apply it to these relationships here, where Palpatine, you don't sense there's real relationship. Is all about the the ends, right? And whereas Obi-Wan has, is offering something more akin to relationship. I was thinking about this too. I came across a blog post uh, as I was thinking about all this. It's a 2017 blog post by Denise Posey. And she's, a, she's the discipleship pastor over at Calvin Theological Seminary. I got to know her earlier this summer. She led a retreat for Reframe Ministries, our parent ministry. And it was a wonderful time. Um, under her leadership. So I was happy to come across this blog post of hers where she talks about the Apostle Paul's model of mentorship. And she wrote this, the Apostle Paul didn't hold back. He was lovingly hard. If you're in a mentoring relationship with a Paul, you expect that because you understand he or she has your best interest in mind, he or she will speak truth, even if it hurts. So I wonder if that's a little bit of Obi Wan's approach to Anakin. Again, it speaks to relationship there. Even once he's turned into Vader, um, he has this speaking truth approach, the hard truth to him. So a question I'm thinking about is why does it fail? And to your to your first point, it needs to fail because we know that's where the story goes. But if you can kind of put that on your mind and just in the context of this series, uh, does that make sense to you to see Obi Wan as sort of this lovingly hard mentor? Um, but yet it doesn't work that's part of the tragedy
1: yeah and i think this is where mentorship is is actually really difficult is that at the end of the day a mentor has to let the mentee be who they choose to be you know uh, i don't think it's I don't think it's terribly different from parenting, right? When your kids are really mm. small, yeah, you can make every decision for them. But as they grow, they become their own people. And there are some times that kids choose to be someone that their parents absolutely do not approve of, but they're of a certain age that the parents have to let them be that. Yep. And I think it's mentoring is the same way. I think the real pain we see in Obi-Wan is that he could not accept that Anakin was his own person. Okay. He felt... Like it was his fault, right? That he owned Anakin's decision. I think that that that's why that scene that we talked about earlier was so important for Obi Wan's ability to be free, which which he later says uh, to to the Inquisitor, right? And he says, "Now we're both free, because he was able to see. Yeah, at the end of the day, I did everything I could. I served Anakin the best I could. I led him the best I could. I did everything for him that I could, but." The final choice
0: was up to
2: him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Anakin. For all of it. I am not your failure, Obi-Wan.
3: I didn't kill Anakin Skywalker.
1: I did. Right now, I have long said that one of the things I think my favorite things about the prequels is they show how corrupt the Jedi had become you know when anakin basically just says let me save like let's let's use our force powers to save my girlfriend and they're like eh you know we don't really do that if she dies she dies and then palpatine says i'll help you save her like to me that's who who would who would not choose to be a sith in that case right so i think we, i think we can talk, we can point at obi-wan's failings and be honest about obi-wan's failings without putting everything on him and saying if he had been better Anakin would not have chosen to become Darth Vader because at the end of the day it was his choice, right? And that lets us go back to that scene in episode five where they recreate the Obi-Wan-Anakin relationship through that extended lightsaber battle, right? And Obi-Wan keeps trying to coach and mentor Anakin and warn him about his own dark impulses and things like that. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Like a mentor has to be able to do those things and say those things and point them out. Also, without taking full responsibility for how the mentee will respond to those things.
0: And I like that you bring in the parental-child relationship as another analogy here, because one element of that that rings true is even if they take that turn, it's hard to completely give up on them, or you want to find a way to keep loving them. And I think we see that here, too. So you mentioned earlier, JR, you wanted to talk about Inquisitor Riva, played by Moses Ingram, a new character, at least apart from the original films. And as you mentioned, empowered with the force, but she uses those abilities to hunt down remaining Jedi for the Empire. And also, at least at first, she seems to be desperate to have Vader as her mentor in a way. So a different relationship going on here. Tell me a little bit more uh, what you liked about this character.
1: I mean, I think she had the most interesting arc in the story. And part of that is because her motives are so hidden until the last couple of episodes. You know, when we find out that she was one of the Jedi younglings and she survived Anakin's massacre of everyone. And so this has all been a, a chess game for her to get close enough to Vader to to hurt him. And of course, again, this is where, this is where I roll my eyes a little bit because we know, we know that we know that this is a fool's errand, right? We know sure. that Vader's fine by the time we get to New Hope. So whatever happens with her, it must not be that. I think watching her particularly in the final episode realize what her quest for vengeance has has led her to the precipice of recognizing that she was in danger of becoming the very thing that she hated.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And then in this really gentle way, finding in some ways a mentor, though, I mean, I we're maybe stretching the term a little bit there since it was a singular exchange, but, you know, uh, at least a different role model, in Obi-Wan Kenobi, yeah, you know, him praising her for showing mercy, right? Whereas we know that Vader's perspective is that mercy is for the weak.
0: A weakness, for sure. I almost wondered, you know, if, if they were actually setting her up to go back to Apostle Paul as being something of a Saul Paul figure, you know, because you have this persecutor who somewhat sees the light on the road to Damascus, Again, we're going to get into a little bit of spoilers here. So give me 30 seconds of spoilers, but I don't think she has a full come to Kenobi moment. I don't think we can say that, but she does have that moment in episode six after she declines to to kill young Luke and instead brings him back to Kenobi. I like how Ben responds to her there. Just says, this speaks to what you were just talking about. Now you're free. We both are. Though, yeah, it's not exactly a road to Damascus thing. It's There's something very Pauline about that, this idea that we find freedom in Christ. So I, I did think that was an interesting place to take her character. I had the same feeling you did. We know she's not going to pull off this scheme she has. But I was still intrigued to find, well, what does happen to her? Where does she end up? Where does it bring her? So I think they handled that well, too.
1: If this functions as an origin story for a character that we get some more, like if we get some shows that center around her or if she starts showing up in some other movies and stuff like great right because that can be a really powerful origin story the surrendering of the quest for vengeance you brought up paul and i wanted to just shout out that paul has a failed mentorship in scripture we know that he and barnabas so barnabas was paul's mentor right for those who are who don't know barnabas essentially recruits paul to go onto the mission field And then we know that Barnabas mentors Paul in his first missionary journey. There's that story where uh, they go to one of the Greek cities and they think that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. And so what that tells us, right, is that Paul is the one speaking and -hmm. Barnabas is the one standing back, approving or guiding or whatever. But then they have a falling out over John Mark. And we don't know all the details of it, but what it looks like is that Barnabas brought another mentee into the fold and he and Paul don't work together and it, it ends up causing a rift in Paul and Barnabas's relationship where they actually split and go their separate ways and Barnabas takes John Mark and does his own thing and there's evidence in later writings of Paul that that relationship was healed you know he makes several positive references to Mark in some of his later epistles you know this is one of those things for me where i wish we had more of that story. I wish that Paul maybe also wrote some memoirs in addition to all of his letters. <laughs> and we got, you know, and we got some of that insight into yep. what caused that fallout and what was the path to reconciliation look like. Because we know that Paul was a prickly guy, right? We know that he seems like he was not the easiest guy to get along with. And it makes me wonder because of because this show is in many ways about a failed mentorship, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so it makes it makes me wonder what that could have looked like i think most of the other pictures of mentoring we get in scripture are overwhelmingly positive like elijah and elisha Mm -hmm. right and some of those jesus you know i guess jesus and the 12 is you know a mixed bag (laughs) (laughs) at least until after the ascension but yeah i don't know like it, it makes me wonder if we had more of these pictures of how mentorships can go wrong, yeah. and then what the path towards reconciliation looks like when what we have are the seeds and the suggestions, at least in the New Testament.
0: And that's what this is. That's what this series is, really. A, a Delving into, as much as it does repeat some things, it also does fill in those gaps of how did this mentorship go wrong, which I think I did appreciate about it, even though overall, I'm with you. I like the expanding of the Star Wars universe rather than the burrowing in. That would, in general, be Ooh, my preference.
1: It's a great way to say it, Josh. I love that.
0: Well, we've gone over a lot. We've gone long, and we haven't even touched on Qui-Gon Jinn as a mentor for Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah. He's, so we'll probably have to let that fall by the wayside this time, JR. Let, let,
3: let
1: me just say this. Let me say one little thing. One little thing. All right, um, go ahead. You know, the, the the series begins with this question of where is Qui-Gon's Force Ghost, Right. And at the very end, spoilers, do your 30-second skip ahead if you haven't seen it. (laughs) Like, the last scene we get is Qui-Gon showing up and Obi-Wan saying it's about time. And then Qui-Gon says, I've been here all along. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, just briefly, when we have the gift of spiritual mentors who have mentored us, it is often the case, at least in my experience, that it will be years until I have grown and gotten to the place where suddenly some lesson that they tried to impart to me Mm. finally makes sense. A lot of times it's because I have finally matured into the ability to have that perspective, right? And that's what Obi-Wan says. I've been here the whole time. You just weren't ready to see me. And I think that was a beautiful picture of the long-term good that mentorship can have. Yeah. Is that mentors plant these seeds, and it it sometimes can take years for those things to bloom. Because— It can take years for us to mature and grow to the place where those things, you know, that, that happens. I did, even though I would have been happy for a little more Qui-Gon than we got, I, I thought that was a really beautiful way to end a series that was about coming to peace with the way we've mentored and succeeded and failed.
0: No, that's great. And it's, it speaks to the truth that patience is involved in, in these sorts of things on both ends as well. So Thanks for that. Thanks for coming on to talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Real quick, before you go, what else is going on with you? What are are you guys talking about on the fascinating podcast right now? We
1: actually just broke for the summer, so we were sort of lamenting the weird summer movies box office that we have. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, that's about it. I... uh, looking forward to you know thor love and thunder you know that i think there's a, few, there's a few things that are right in my wheelhouse for tc coming up so hopefully we'll hopefully i'll slide in before other people pitch all of them <laughs> <laughs> sounds good
0: all right thanks jared enjoy the rest of your summer all right thank you josh always a pleasure
3: know that voice. Of course, that was Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters with their classic rock celebration of the people we look up to for staying true and showing us how to do the same in this messy life. I love how the passion in that tune makes it seem like maybe the hero in question is someone wearing a cape or a uniform, but the truth in the lyric is so much more ordinary. And that's just one of the anthems to mentorship that I, John J. Thompson, your musical mentor, have gathered for you on this episode's corresponding Spotify mixtape. You know I'm a professional, I know what I'm doing here. I've gathered pop, rock, rap, alternative soul and Americana tracks around this theme, including a relatively new indie R&B pop artist named Lady Bree with a song called Dream Team that you'll hear a bit later in the show. I remember many musical mentors in my life, but lately I've been thinking a lot about a certain youth leader who, when he heard me saying something pretty sarcastic and very ill-informed about Bruce Springsteen, invited me really kind of challenged me to sit with him and listen carefully to a live Springsteen album until I could understand what was happening spiritually in the music. He coached me but allowed me to recognize the liturgical and scriptural elements on my own. You might find this hard to believe but I was a bit of a know-it-all even as a 12 year old. His willingness to sit with me and mentor me in that way has paid enormous dividends. I've been acting as a musical mentor ever since and I still need mentors in my life. You can find this melange of musical mentorship by searching for the Think Christian profile and following it. You'll see this mix right there in the list of playlists, and you can follow it. And the latest episode mix always sits there at the top, and it updates automatically whenever a new show launches. You can also find the massive archive list and over 60 individual mixes I've made for previous episodes. Until next time, this is JJT sending this long-distance dedication out to Greg, Kathy, Jim, David, Randy, and all of the other mentors who have spoken into my life. Peace.
0: Josh Larson here, back with the TC Podcast, ready to talk Ms. Marvel with Michelle Reyes. Michelle, this was a series that you wanted to make sure we covered in some way at TC. So maybe you can tell listeners what it's about and what you think of it so far. At the time of this recording, we're both about halfway through the six-episode streaming series. So where are you at with this? Um, And kind of give us a little background on what it's all about.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've watched about two and a half episodes thus far. And I have to say, I'm I'm loving it. So I'm second generation Indian American. This movie is about a Pakistani American girl named Kamala Khan, played by Iman Valani. And it's so interesting being in the fourth phase of the MCU, because we're at the point now where we have these teenagers who their celebrities are the superheroes of right. Phase One. You know, like they're living into their legacy. Her favorite character is Miss Marvel, and she just wants to go to like AvengerCon, the first AvengerCon. Yeah, <laughs> and so for me, as as Episode One started rolling out, I was like, this feels very Spider-Man-esque. Like, she's this Mm. local teenager, definite underdog, right? There's this line about, like, brown girls from New Jersey don't save the world. And on on top of that, Kamala has to navigate these cultural tensions of her family, what's expected of her as being Pakistani, honoring her parents, right? As as she's navigating growing powers. But I think in a way that's a little bit less angsty than Peter Parker (laughs) ever Mm. was. So thank goodness for that. But so much of what Kamala goes through resonates just with my own life and experiences. Okay. Not being allowed to go out, for example, right? Like just— her parents, assuming that if she's going out, it's going to be to like a party and bad things are going to happen. Talk about like the British and jokes about Shah Rukh Khan. And in fact, in episode three, they include a music clip from one of the most popular, uh, like famous Bollywood movies of all time, Hamapke Hekon. And I was just like, I know this song, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I know I get all of the references, and I don't know if, if yeah. you remember from the first Avenger movie. I know there's been some pushback uh, about Miss Marvel, very similar to like the commentary around Turning Red when it came out, that mm. some folks just don't feel like they can relate to this series. And I, I think we have to ask who this show is for because I, I would say it's, it's for me. <laughs> it's for. Yeah. Pakistani, Indian, South Asian men and women who have yet to see a South Asian take center stage in the MCU. And I really feel like, and what I appreciate about this movie is that now everyone else can experience what we've been experiencing thus far in this journey, which is watching a movie with a character that, that doesn't look like them or, or lives their life like them, or even speaks the same language as them, but that they can be inspired by as, as, as they watch.
0: Yeah, that's the other question to ask is, what does it mean to relate? And it may not always have to mean you see a mirror of yourself. You know, it can mean learn something, understand something about a different character who has a different background and then relate to them through those differences, but also through the universal things yeah. that will bumble up that will bubble up because there's absolutely some of that here as well. For me particularly as someone who can't make all those connections you just described, still this has been incredibly fun. I think it feels quite (laughs) unique in the MCU, though I take your point about Peter Parker. That is a very good comparison. I think in a lot of ways there are similarities. But, yeah, you have this setting with the Pakistani family. And how about the fact that their Muslim faith is at the forefront of this story? Very much so. How many scenes we get in the first couple of episodes set at the mosque? I find that fascinating. And to learn what some of the traditions are there and particularly what it means for Kamala and her family to be part Of this faith community. I also just really like the aesthetics of the series so far. So much of this. And you can start with the opening title design, right? Mm -hmm. But also the graphics that are incorporated into the live action scenes. A lot of it feels almost as if you've you're living in this heavily doodled (laughs) notebook that's at the bottom of a teenager's backpack. And they carry that through really some of the more fun scenes in the series. So I like that. And as far as the lead, you mentioned her Iman Vellani as Kamala Khan, she's fantastic, mm-hmm. just so teen specific in the way that she's smarter than maybe and she's superpowered than maybe people, you know, but there's a relatability yeah. to her as well about that stage of life that she wears so well and a looseness she wears with all of the craziness that is happening around her. So she's incredibly engaging as the lead of this series and definitely have been enjoying her performance. So let's talk about Ms. Marvel um, within the context of mentorship here and and maybe Christian mentorship in particular. Over at uh, the website for the Christian Reformed Church in North America, that's the parent denomination uh, of Think Christian, I found this toolkit that is for mentoring a child or a young person. I think it was designed originally for church mentorship programs. And this toolkit suggests four things a mentor should help a young person do. So I want to run through these real quick, and then we'll apply them to Ms. Marvel. The first thing is see that they belong. So see that they understand that God invites you into relationship with God and with a faith community. The second thing is see that they know and understand their faith and by studying God's word largely, also see that they have hope, that they understand God's plan is one of restoration. And then the fourth thing is help them to feel called and equipped. So how can you use your gifts for God's kingdom? So three episodes in, Kamala has met a number of potential mentors. I think we could say she has an older brother who's maybe Um, maybe five or six years older than her, so significant gap between them in terms of the stages of life they're in. He's about to get married as the series starts, so he might function as a mentor of sorts. She does have her parents. They are very strict, as you said, but they're also very loving and heavily involved in her life. There's also this group we meet two episodes in, I think, of interdimensional beings who are somehow connected to the bangle that she wears, which has ignited her powers. So at this point, Michelle, do you see a potential mentor in any of those figures and maybe especially in the manner of that faith formation toolkit? Is there someone who might function in one of those ways for Kamala or are we going to have to wait and hope? And you mentioned her already, that Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, who Kamala just adores and idolizes, her favorite superhero, maybe we're going to have to wait and hope and see if she shows up, which has been hinted at.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, that would be really cool. I'd love to see that Interchange <laughs> between Kamala and and uh, Captain Marvel, but I really appreciate this question. I think it's a really good one to think about mentorship within this film series of Miss Marvel. And the person that comes to mind actually is is Kamala's mom, and uh, you know she has an incredibly complicated relationship with her. Right? I mean, this is first generation immigrant versus second generation immigrant dynamics going on. D- different personalities as well. But what stood out to me about her mom is that she has this really powerful line at the end of episode one where she encourages Kamala to focus. She says, focus on your story. And she says it in this weighty voice. And I don't know if you've noticed this, Josh, but every time her mom speaks, there's like this really kind of staccato type punctuation and intentionality Mm. with every word that she says. Like it. I feel like every time she's, her mom speaks, you kind of just turn your head a little bit. You're supposed to clue in yeah. on what she's saying. And and her advice is really interesting to Kamala because Kamala just wants to be Captain Marvel, which, I mean, is, is a white superhero, right? And on, on a side note, it is interesting that in her retelling of the Avengers Endgame, it's focused on Captain Marvel, right? Like, she doesn't talk about Tony Stark. She doesn't talk about Iron Man's sacrifice. Yeah, that's true. Like She just talks about... Captain Marvel fighting Thanos, which I think is just such a different perspective on what we've seen thus far in the superhero timeline. So that hit me in the opening lines of the movie when she's retelling the story, because I was even wondering, like, why do you want to be her? <laughs> like, okay. Kamala, why, like, why don't you want to be yourself? I remember thinking that huh, in, the, in, okay. the, in the opening scene, and I think— We see this teenage Pakistani girl navigating this racially mixed world. Uh, Her school seems fairly white. And she wants to wear the original Marvel superhero clothing, you know. And yet her mother is this voice of wisdom calling her back and saying, you belong just as you are. Like, be yourself. And if you want to be good, if you want to save the world, then... Don't give up on your family and don't give up on your culture in in the process. And so, interestingly enough, the name that Kamala uses for her mom, Ami, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, is my middle name, (laughs) but it's also, it's a biblical name. It means my people. That's what that word means. And so I think there's, there's this interplay, and I hope we see this more, where Kamala's mom is the linchpin for her daughter as she's navigating these growing superhero powers to not forsake her people. I think in many ways, kind of like Moses, right? Like as he rises up as a leader, like he has to go back to his people and has to, you know, understand the suffering in Goshen before he's able to rise up as as a leader. And there's all this conversation about like, who's going to save the Pakistanis in America? Who's going Mm -hmm. to like save our people? Which also on a side note is super interesting that we have gone from 2001 where people like me, people like Pakistanis are seen as the the threat, the the enemy, to now being part of the American hero. And for her to do this well, she has to stay rooted in her people and her Uh culture. And I think her mom is going to kind of mentor her along that path. It's
3: time to stop fantasizing.
2: I wish that you
3: would
0: just focus on you. Your grades, your family, your story. I mean, who do you want to be in this world, huh? Do you want to be good? Like we raised you to be? Or or do you want to be some, you know, this cosmic head in the clouds person? Yeah, I like that. Her mom played by Zenobia Straff, I believe, and she does have some comic scenes when she's supposed to be the overbearing parent but you're right there are those moments where we're we're called to focus and she brings a gravity to what she's saying along these lines maybe that's why there's a through line here the person mm. i was thinking of as well michelle is her mom's mom who we don't see a lot of but Kamala's grandmother, I think maybe three or four times, she has a video call with her. And again, it's funny because the grandmother is, of course, holding the phone too close, right? You just see her eye. and But you get this sense that they do have, even as Kamala is exasperated, they have this loving relationship. They stay in touch. She is... Back in Pakistan is where her grandmother still lives, I believe. So they mostly connect through these video calls. And uh, it's used for humor, but there is a moment, um, I think it's in episode three, so maybe I won't spoil too much. But I will say they connect on one of these calls. Uh, Sana, her, her grandmother, played by Samina Ahmed and there's a suggestion maybe she too might be taking a more active role so there's some lineage there as well then i think maybe being passed from the grandmother to the mother as you were saying and then down to kamala so michelle you also wanted to bring up another aspect of of the series and that's the costuming tell me a little bit about what stood out for the costumes for you
2: yeah i mean costumes and commercialization i feel like go hand in hand in the in the MCU especially in this fourth phase. And I think it's it's interesting, it's problematic, it's confusing. We see a glimpse of this in the Hawkeye TV series that came out, you know, recently where there's this Marvel musical and there's this, like, star-spangled man with a plan song going on. And I was like, what is this? But, you know, people are throwing money at it. And then that song is played again at AvengerCon and it, it's all part of this sort of, like, complicated, commodified legacy that's going on within, within the Marvel universe. I feel like. Like the film is willing to own that and critique itself. The fact that Kamala finds her own superhero calling in this sort of like commercialized Marvel <laughs> space is isn't yeah. lost on me either. But I think this whole struggle of like the commodified superhero is is kind of given a deep dive and a snapshot within Kamala's own life as she's struggling to figure out what she should wear. Right? Yeah, once like, her powers you know,
0: start developing, you mean?
2: Well, even in the first episode, like when she wants to go to AvengerCon, okay. her parents want her to wear what's called a Shalwar Kameez. That's right. Which is a very traditional South Asian, you know, Pakistani Indian type dress. They want it to be green and purple. You'd be like the the Hulk, like the Bota Hulk and Choti Polk, you know, like big Hulk, little Hulk. Uh-huh. And she's just like utterly humiliated by this idea. But I think it's not just this idea of her parents wanting to go with her to AvengerCon. It's like, dress as a superhero in a way that would be authentic to your own mm. culture. And she doesn't want to wear her traditional clothing clothing right. in this space that's dominated by non Pakistanis, right? Yep. And all the merch and all the clothing that she knows that the other folks are gonna be wearing and, and and that's even like contrasted at AvengerCon with that gal Zoe, you know, what she's wearing as as Miss Marvel. So but then that sort of mirage of what a superhero should look like begins to crumble, right? She leaves the gloves in the the bathroom. Instead, she dons the Pakistani bangle. And I feel like we're starting to move towards her kind of fusing white American and Pakistani mm. cultural artifacts in her clothing. And that's, that's kind of coming together more and more with each episode. So, I mean, we've seen this throughout books and movies Throughout history, right? Clothing makes the person. Yep. And so I'm curious to see the ways in which, as Kamala continues to grow and develop, what she wears as as part of a representation of, of being her authentic self and owning her story.
0: Yeah, I love tracing costume design, especially in these superhero movies, because the the aesthetics are just so unique, but also it often has so much meaning in the way that you're describing. And I think we're seeing that change <laughs> Uh, not only from the beginning where she just wants to dress up as cosplay, but now she sees herself as becoming potentially a superhero as well with these powers that the Bengal has ignited. And her costuming is starting to change when she's beginning to to train with her friend, Bruno, (laughs) played by Matt Lintz. She has kind of a a rinky-dink costume, right? Homemade costume. And yet later, I think might be episode three as well, uh, Bruno, her friend, Mm -hmm. I believe it's, he has designed Mm -hmm. um, a bit of a headpiece that looks a little different, a little more professional. So that's something you've alerted me to. I do wanna follow is as she becomes uh, more slick, As Ms. Marvel in her costuming, is she going to retain some of that identity that her mother wants her to hold hold on to and that you've highlighted here? So, yeah, that's a good thing to keep an eye on. I'll have to look for that. Anything else about the show, uh, Michelle, we didn't get to that you want to touch on before we wrap up here?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I, both you and I, we've written about uh, Doctor Strange and how we appreciate the explorations of spirituality, um, you know, written for Think Christian on, on the issue of spirituality and the multiverse. Mm-hmm. And Miss Marvel, I think, is going to also be going in some interesting spiritual new dimensions, particularly as they talk about like the Noor dimension, right? And I actually shouted out loud <laughs> when the episode, I think it's episode three, first introduced the concept of the jinn, mm-hmm. which is just such a Big figure in Eastern folklore, big figure in eastern myth uh, in Indian mythology as as well. And so the you know the jinn, the, they're these malevolent creatures. Like in the West, we've been introduced to the jinn via Aladdin and the the genie and the lamp. But you know, within like the original tales, you don't know what's gonna come out of this lamp or this box. Okay. Or, you know, it could could be great. They could help you, they could eat you, interesting. <laughs> you know. Okay. And so most of the time people fear the djinn. Mm. And the fact that jinn are now connected somehow to Kamala, her family lineage, is really interesting. There's so much humor in that, right? Because Kamala comes to Bruno, her friend, and she's like, I think I'm a djinn. He's like, like gin and tonic. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I think I've seen plays on the fact, exactly, that many white viewers will be like Bruno, having no idea what a gin sure. actually is. But I'm like, super excited where that storyline will go because, you know, we've seen since the Avengers Endgame that the future of Marvel is going to be female. I think the MCU has made good on that promise. But what I love in this movie is that they're diversifying the type of female superhero model mm that we should have. And a a djinn superhero goes against any kind of Western prototype that we have of of a hero. It could be good or bad, right? Like We're just in new territory. And I'm looking forward to seeing how the women in Kamala's life, her grandmother, her great-grandmother, Aisha, how they form perhaps positive or even dangerous superhero models for her and how How's that going to impact where Kamala goes? Interesting.
0: Yeah. Cause that is very much an open question as far as uh, when in episode three at this point. So another thing we'll have to keep our eye out for as the series continues. Thanks for that, Michelle. Now, last time you were on the show, we did talk about turning red, um, in the context of your new book with Helen Lee, the race wise family, I imagine you're still busy with podcasts, other events, getting the word uh, out about that. Anything listeners should look forward to or try to catch.
2: I have a a weekly newsletter where I, you know, to try to kind of dive into some of the more difficult conversations on race that we're wrestling with right now in our country. So, yeah, even things like, you know, how do we make sense of—and I think it's a good question for Christian parents to ask is, like, how do we navigate taking our kids to a movie in a way that explores Islam, right? Like, if we're a Christian family, how can we— Not shy away in fear, but actually go to the movies, watch this, not the movies, it's on Disney Plus, but watch it and and then have a conversation with their kids and talk about it and and even just talk about the positive portrayals and how that's important in terms of de- mystifying and deconstructing these stereotypes of Middle Easterns and Pakistani and Indians as terrorists, right? There's good conversations to be had here. So, uh, yeah. Well, and how can people... Lots that you can check out on uh, on my website, michelleamireyes.com. There you go.
0: And that's where they can sign up for that newsletter as well? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Michelle. Continued luck with the book and all the stuff surrounding it. And thanks again for suggesting we talk about Ms. Marvel.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: I love it when one of John J. Thompson's playlists for the show introduces me to an artist that's new to me, and that was the case with Lady Bree. You heard a bit of her track Dream Team. There comes from her 20, 2022 album Me, and fits nicely with Ms. Marvel, a show about a teen in need of a mentor trying to find her team. Encouragement seems to be one of the most important things that a mentor can offer. So, hopefully, we've given you encouragement in some way with this episode. Whether you're mentoring someone or receiving good guidance in your faith journey, we hope you've been encouraged, as Paul said to Timothy, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Thanks to Michelle Reyes and JR Foresteros for joining me on the podcast today. You can keep up with both of them on Twitter. JR is at JR Foresteros, and Michelle is at Dr. Michelle Reyes. We're on Twitter too, as well as Facebook. Look for us at Think Christian, and we are over on YouTube. That's where you can find video versions of the podcast, as well as other video content. I just put up a new video essay for the TC Movie Club about Jordan Peele's us. So look for all that at the Think Christian channel on YouTube. If you are watching us on YouTube right now, you did miss out on a couple of tracks from the Spotify playlist that John J. Thompson compiled for this episode, all under the theme of mentors. Search for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify to listen to that. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see God's gospel story in your whole life. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder. And Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Baston. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our fame.